And welcome, Strange Seeds. You're listening to the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. Open your mind, take off that flesh suit, and dive into primordial waters as we swim through the mystical and magical, weird phenomenon, unsettling synchronicities, and the truly terrifying. I'm your host, Britt. Chumalungma, mother goddess of the earth, goddess of the sky. Her name sounds as beautiful and breathtaking as the sight of her. Never heard of Chumalungma? Well, I bet you have, though you've probably heard it referred to by another name, Mount Everest. Chumalungma is the highest peak above sea level on the planet, towering above all else in the Himalayas at a whopping 29,032 feet, or 8,849 meters. It borders both Nepal and Tibet, which has been unfortunately under the control of China since it was annexed in 1950. She has been known by the locals as the Mother Goddess of the Earth, or the Forehead of the Sky, for centuries if not longer, and for good reason. Over the last 97 years, Chomalugma has claimed the lives and souls of close to 300 people, both Sherpa guides and climbers alike. Despite this number, she isn't technically considered one of the deadliest mountains. Annapurna and K2, along with others, have claimed way more lives than she has. Though that doesn't mean she isn't formidable. Some believe it to be disrespectful to walk on the Mother Goddess and say that those that reach the summit are stepping on her head. To climb her, locals and Sherpa perform a special ceremony prior to the climb, called a puja. In this ceremony, cakes, incense, and other goods are offered up to the Mother Goddess as a way to ask permission to climb her. If the ceremony and prayers are received well, the Sherpas, or native local mountain guides with incredible climbing skills and high-altitude adaptation, and the commercial climbers as well, can proceed with the climb. Every year, bids for the summit of this majestic mountain increase dramatically, causing an increased commercialization of Chomalungma, unfortunately. Over the years, teams have been put together just to clean up the debris, trash, and climbing equipment left behind and abandoned by previous climbers. Something else they've tried to clean up along the way? The dead bodies littering the mountain and the ones seeping out of the bottom of the Kumbu Icefall Glacier. Much like the corn song, when you die on Chomalungma, you're here to stay. Modern mountaineering culture on the world's tallest mountains has an unwritten code of every man for himself which means if you become too incapacitated or weak to continue the climb up or the descent down on your own, you're as good as abandoned, your soul destined to haunt the mountain at the whim of the Mother Goddess. Perhaps one of the most well-known names in mountaineering history of the Big Mama Chomalongma, Reinhold Messner became the first to conquer the mountain without the aid of supplemental oxygen in 1978 with a partner, and then again in 1979 by himself. Messner, an Italian mountaineer, has summited hundreds of times, conquering all of the world's tallest peaks and numerous others, earning well-deserved awards and status as one of the greats in mountaineering history. He's considered a pioneer. In 1986, years after his acclaimed summit of Chomolongma without supplemental oxygen, 
Messner was in the forest of Tibet when he claimed to encounter what the Sherpas referred to as a yeti or kemo. Now, if I'm butchering these pronunciations and you're aware of what they actually are, please let me know. Here's a few passages from his book, My Quest for the Yeti, Confronting the Himalaya's Deepest Mystery. I began climbing faster, my pace almost mechanical, and emerged from the verdant undergrowth into a clearing. This was unquestionably a mountain path, the trail I had anxiously been searching for for so long. I followed it without hesitation, making, I'm sorry, without hesitating, making my way up toward where I thought Chagu must be. My exhilaration grew with every breath. Then suddenly, silent as a ghost, something large and dark stepped into a space thirty feet ahead among the rhododendron bushes. A yak, I thought, becoming excited at the thought of meeting some Tibetans and getting a hot meal and a place to sleep that evening. But the thing stood still. Then, noiseless and light-footed, it raced across the forest floor, disappearing, reappearing, picking up speed. Neither branches nor ditches slowed its progress. This was not a yak. The fast-moving silhouette dashed behind a curtain of leaves and branches, only to step out into a clearing some ten yards away for a few seconds. It moved upright. It was as if my own shadow had been projected into the thicket. For one heartbeat it stood motionless, then turned away and disappeared into the dusk. I had expected to hear it make some sound, but there was nothing. The forest remained silent. No stones rolled down the slope. No twigs snapped. I might have heard a few soft footfalls in the grayness of the underbrush. I stared, first amazed, then perplexed, at the spot where this apparition had stood. Why had I not taken a picture? I stood stock still, listening to the silence, my senses as alert as those of an animal. Then I crept into the undergrowth, from which the creature had emerged only to disappear again, noting that everything that moved, every sound that rose above the murmur of the lightest breeze, every scent different from that of the forest floor. There in the black clay I found a gigantic footprint. It was absolutely distinct. Even the toes were unmistakable. To see that the imprint was fresh, I touched the soil next to it. It was fresh. I took a picture and checked the soil around it. My shoes didn't sink in nearly as deeply as had the creature's bare soles. Staring at the black clay, I suddenly remembered the famous photograph. Like all Himalaya climbers, I knew the Yeti legends well enough. They are told throughout Sherpa country, but I would never have imagined that a real, living creature might be connected to this legend. I knew large parts of Tibet and the Himalaya pretty well, Yet even in those remote places where we mountain climbers, with our modern equipment, can survive for months at a time, I had never seen anything resembling such a creature. So I pushed on. Sometime between dusk and midnight, I came out of the forest into a clearing. Bright moonlight filled the valley before me. Black mountains cast sharp shadows on the slopes. The snaky coils of the mountain trail, which ran over the rises and dips of the pasture, disappeared into the darkness of a moraine. Not a single hut was to be seen, no scent of animals in the air, no dots of lighting. Making my way back through some ash-colored juniper bushes, I suddenly heard an eerie sound, a whistling sound, similar to the warning call mountain goats make. 
Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the outline of an upright figure dart between the trees to the edge of the clearing, where low-growing thickets covered the steep slope. The figure hurried on, silent and hunched forward, disappearing behind a tree only to reappear again against the moonlight. It stopped for a moment and turned to look at me. Again I heard the whistle, more of an angry hiss, and for a heartbeat I saw eyes and teeth. The creature towered menacingly, its face a gray shadow, its body a black outline. Covered with hair, it stood upright on two short legs and had powerful arms that hung down to its knees. I guessed it to be over seven feet tall. Its body looked much heavier than that of a man of that size, but it moved with such agility and power toward the edge of the escarpment that I was both startled and relieved. Mostly I was stunned. No human would have been able to run like that in the middle of the night. It stopped again beyond the trees and the low-growing thickets, as if to catch its breath, and stood motionless in the moonlight, moonlit night without looking back. I was too mesmerized to take my binoculars out of my backpack. The longer I stared at it, the more the figure seemed to change shape, but it was similar to whatever it was I had come across farther down the trail. That much I knew. A heavy stench hung in the air, and the creature's receding calls resounded within me. I heard it plunge into the thicket, saw it rush up the slope on all fours, higher and higher, deeper into the night and into the mountains, until it disappeared and all was still again. I stared into the depths of the night sky. My hands were shaking. The Sherpas used to say that the whistling meant danger, and that to escape a yeti, one should move downhill as quickly as possible. How could anyone run through the thickets and underbrush as fast as that creature had? It had disappeared over the moonlight-flecked slopes without stumbling once, as if driven by some monstrous fury. Now this is taken directly from My Quest for the Yeti. Confronting the Himalayas' Deepest Mystery, pages 4 through 5 and 7 through 8, by Reinhold Messner. Reinhold Messner became fascinated with the idea of the existence of the Himalayan Yeti, setting out on several expeditions in search of proof and an answer to the mystery of his own encounter. Though profound, Messner wasn't the only mountaineer who claimed to see this Yeti creature high up in the Himalayas. There have actually been some photographs that are reportedly from a yeti high up on Chomalungma, but we'll, you know, that's up for speculation as to the origin of the, the photo and, and if it's real. Besides the stories of the yeti, which are numerous and easily accessible, there are some other stories shared by climbers and guides that speak to the ethereal qualities of the mountain. So before we get into some more tantalizing tales about the ghosts of Chomalungma, I kind of want to do a quick intermission here about something that I found very interesting, and there is a little twist at the end of this story, so... Green Boots. Green Boots is perhaps one of the most recognizable monikers when it comes to the mountaineers and guides that attempt to climb the Mother Goddess. Referring to the very noticeable green hiking boots adorning him, Green Boots is the body of an unidentified climber that is frozen into a cave above the death zone on the northeast ridge of Chomolungma. Now, before we dive deeper into the story of Green Boots, let's review some science for those that might not be familiar with some of the technicalities of Everest. I wouldn't know myself if I hadn't spent several months nearly obsessively researching Chomolungma and watching climbing documentaries galore. I won't go crazy, but here's the rundown. 
So we've already established that she's the queen of the mountains at a whopping 29,032 feet above sea level, according to the 2020 report. Now, because of the unique nature of the Himalayas and how they were formed, they're currently rising and growing faster than they're being eroded away, allowing for these monolithic mountain formations. Along with other 8,000 meter peaks, Chumalungma houses a death zone in her bosom. The death zone refers to any area above 26,000 feet above sea level where the oxygen levels plummet to a mere 30% of the oxygen that's available to you at sea level, making it nearly impossible for human survival at that altitude. In order to summit Everest, you not only need to pass through the death zone on your ascent, but obviously on your way back down as well. The majority of deaths that occur on the Mother Goddess happen in this formidable place, and usually on the descent. More than half of those that die above 8,000 meters expired on their way back down from the summit. So, summit fever's no joke. Let's get back to Green Boots. Having been frozen into the side of the mountain for two decades, Green Boots has quite literally become a landmark for mountaineers who are taking on the Mother Goddess. He was first spotted and reported on by climbers in 2001, lying in a small alcove overhang on the route to the summit in an almost fetal position, numerous oxygen canisters littering his resting place. Considering that most climbers who take the northeast route will pass his body, or have to actually step over his extended legs, he is kind of a hard guy to miss. Though the body has never been officially identified, it is accepted by many that the body belongs to 28-year-old Sewang Paljur. Again, I am sorry if this pronunciation is wrong. Um, if I butchered it, please let me know. I don't mean to offend anyone. Many speculate that Paljor died during the infamous 1996 snowstorm that struck the Mother Goddess, killing 15 climbers that season alone. This is the very same storm that gave way to John Krakauer's bestseller, Into Thin Air, which I actually read as a class assignment in the ninth grade and didn't think it would affect me as much as it has. Beck Weathers miraculously survived this same storm, though guides Rob Hall and Scott Fisher, along with many others, did not. If you're not familiar with the story, I do highly recommend reading the book and watching the documentary Into Thin Air. Maybe not so much the movie adaptations, though they're okay. Sewing Paljor was a member of the Indo-Tibetan Border Police, who joined an elite group of climbers hoping to be the first Indians to summit Everest. During their climb, however, bad weather struck them, and they ended up leaving Camp 4 four and a half hours later than scheduled, meaning they surely would be descending from the summit through the death zone in the dark and in the storm. This is where it gets a little hairy. Other members of Paljor's team who were at the lower camps supposedly reported to a group of Japanese climbers up on the mountain that Paljor and his climbing partners were missing and asked the group to provide assistance and aid or to help them back down to Camp 4. Other reports, including the ones made subsequently by the Japanese climbing team, say otherwise that the Japanese party was unaware that the group of Indian climbers needed assistance and were reported missing when they passed them along the route. Either way, Sawang Paljor and one other climbing partner were never seen alive again. In 2014, climbers who were familiar with the story of Green Boots were shocked to find that his body was apparently missing from this small alcove and immediately started spreading this news. 
Surely with how difficult it was to move anything that had frozen to the mountain, let alone a body, they would have made some sort of hype about it, right? Well, maybe not. According to Tsawang Paujor's family, they had requested the recovery of his body several times, only to be met with expensive expedition and recovery fees and unwilling climbers. I think his brother may have reported that it was somewhere close to 70000 of their dollars that it required just to attempt to recover his body. Perhaps someone or some small climbing team took it upon themselves to move the body of Green Boots out of respect, or maybe just to avoid having to continue to walk over his dead body on the route. Regardless, his body was missing from his cave grave for three years. He was miraculously spotted again in 2017 in the same cave, though this time it looks like whoever moved him may have turned him over on his other side. If you look at videos or photos of Green Boots, you can see he's originally lying on his left side facing the summit. Following his three-year Houdini act, however, it appears that he's now lying on his right side, so facing downward. Dead Helpers I'd like to preface this next section by mentioning that a lot of the following stories can't really be verified or supported by evidence. In fact, it was incredibly difficult to research most of the preceding claim experiences, so feel free to take them with a grain of salt or as you will. The sources I was able to locate all pretty much said the same thing, and with no sources mentioned, suggesting some copy, pasting, content spinning going on, which I'm not about being a part of, so I'm going to present them as fictional stories. So without complaining too much more about plagiarism on the internet and unsourced stories, here are some tantalizing tales from Chomolongma. In 1933, English botanist, photographer, and mountaineer Frank Smith attempted to climb Everest as a member of Hugh Rutledge's expedition. Smith's partner had turned back long before him on the mountain, and he found himself alone as he pressed onward. At some point, he himself had to turn around, no longer being able to continue on in hopes of the summit. During his descent, he felt accompanied by another climber who felt very near. The climber seemed so real that Smith exchanged a few words and even offered a bit of his mint cake to the figure. Later on, Smith would go on to claim that he experienced an even stranger event, informing others that he had seen floating objects high up on the mountain ridges. He described the sight as follows. I saw two curious-looking objects floating in the sky. They strongly resembled kite balloons in shape, but one possessed what appeared to be squat, underdeveloped wings, and the other a protuberance suggestive of a beak. They hovered motionless but seemed slowly to pulsate, a pulsation incidentally much slower than my own heartbeats. My brain appeared to be working normally, and I deliberately put myself through a series of tests. Now, the original source for this quotation uh, I could not find. If you can find it, let me know. In 1975... Climbers Dougal Haston and Doug Scott were supposedly climbing Chumalongma with unconventional gear and on a previously uncharted path up on the mountain. Along their journey, they both felt aided by a mysterious third climber whose presence comforted the pair and helped encourage them onward. When Pemba Dorji returned from his summit bid on Chumalongma in 2004, he reported to others that he saw black shadow figures high up on the mountain ridges who, upon approaching him, began begging him for food. 
Pimba Dorji holds the claim for the fastest ascent of Everest, climbing the mountain in a mere 8 hours and 10 minutes, a time that was later confirmed by both Nepal's tourism ministry and the Guinness Book of World Records. Pimba Dorji believes that the shadow figures were the souls of the deceased climbers who had been left up on the mountain, destined to haunt the mother goddess and fellow climbers until proper burial rites could be performed. Climber Jeremy Windsor claimed to have been accompanied by some unknown phantom climber along his route as well. Here is his reported description, taken from his essay, Voices in the Air. I first met Jimmy on the balcony, a cold, windswept snow shelf high up on the southeast ridge of Mount Everest. At an altitude of more than 8,200 meters, our introduction had been brief, with little more than a muffled hello and a few words of encouragement passing between us. Over my right shoulder, obscured by the bulky oxygen mask and the rim of down that smothered my face, I was sure I could see Jimmy moving lightly in the darkness. But despite him remaining close by me for the rest of the day, I didn't see him again. Just to play the devil's advocate here, I did some digging into physical and mental conditions of climbers at such high altitudes, and it turns out there are conditions that are being studied these days that could explain away the mysterious and strange phenomena experienced by exasperated climbers at extreme heights. According to a 2017 study by Katerina Hufner that can be found in Cambridge's own Psychological Medicine Journal, Third-person phenomena can be attributed to episodes of psychosis suffered by climbers at extreme altitudes and could be some kind of survival mechanism. Here's what the medical study basically concluded. Conclusions Episodes of psychosis during exposure to high altitude are frequently reported, but have not been specifically examined or assigned to medical diagnoses. In addition to the risk of suffering from somatic mountain illnesses, Climbers and workers at high altitude should be aware of the potential occurrence of psychotic episodes and associated risks and respective coping strategies. You can find this article online, which houses all kinds of data gathered around this subject. The link will be in the episode description and on our website. It's a pretty fascinating read. To dive a little farther down into the waters of the study, here are two more excerpts. Psychosis has been proposed to benefit climbers where hallucinations consisted of voices or people encouraging them towards survival behavior. However, it can also prove detrimental, resulting in potential misjudgments of dangerous scenarios. The incidence of psychosis was not formally assessed in previous studies, but the occurrence of hallucinations, one of the core features, was very variable in the literature. Wu of 2006 reported hallucinations in 3% of cases with HACE, which is high-altitude cerebral edema, while Wilson, in his 2009 study, reported them in 32% of climbers above 7,500 meters, and Brueger, 1999, found hallucinatory experiences in 7 of 8 88% world-class climbers who reached altitudes above 8,500 meters without supplementary oxygen. In the present study, hallucinations occurred in 42% of episodes at a mean altitude, 7,280 meters. Of these episodes, in 34%, the hallucinations occurred together with high-altitude cerebral edema. 
Considering the severity and high mortality of high-altitude cerebral edema, it is most likely that hallucinations and or psychosis can also occur outside of ACE. This leaves us pondering the origins of the strange occurrences that are frequently reported up on the Mother Goddess. Are the climbers actually encountering strange spirits of deceased climbers, or energy that's directly related to the Mother Goddess herself? Or are they simply suffering from auditory, visual, and somesthetic hallucinations due to the complications of being at such great altitudes? We'll leave it up for speculation, as all things left with a bit of mystery continue to fascinate the minds of many, including myself. So I uh, honestly almost ended this episode without providing you guys with some reading recommendations. And of course, as always, the sources will be listed in the episode description for you guys. Some reading recommendations for you guys. This list is a little shorter than probably the Venusian reading recommendation. <laughs> now, um, I've done more research on Chomolungma than I have the Venusians, which... It was, I don't know, it didn't sit well with me that I didn't have as many reading recommendations on this episode as I did the first, but here we go. Reading recommendations, the first one, My Quest for the Yeti, Confronting the Himalaya's Deepest Mystery by Reinhold Messner. Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. Voices in the Air by Jeremy S. Windsor. So it'll just be those those three books for you guys this time, but I really hope you enjoy. There are tons of documentaries on Chomolongma. Easy to find. Very interesting. Very captivating. I love it. I hope you guys enjoy. That's a wrap on the second episode of the Primordia podcast, your source for Strange. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, as I definitely enjoyed writing about it, and I'm very glad to share it with you all. We've got tons of exciting episode material in the works as we speak, but if you have something you would like to hear about, let us know. Or if you are someone, or you know someone, who has a strange story to share, whether it's alien-related, or a case of deja vu, spooky stuff, or just an off-putting situation or occurrence, we'll feature it on our next episodes. Just send us a message over at primordia.bwc at gmail.com or shoot us a message or submit a post over on Facebook or Instagram. Link in the podcast description. As always, thank you so much for listening. Stay strange.